0: Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. The Migrant Heart is a timely memoir to consider on the eve of St. Patrick's Day when so many people consider their Irish identity. Dennis Sampson, its author, left Ireland from Montreal in his early 20s and made that city his home. But there was always a pull to Ireland, a certain conflict of identities, which he explores with great perception and sensitivity in this memoir. I spoke to him recently and began by asking him why he was drawn or maybe compelled to write A Migrant Heart and what he wanted to explore in looking at his own life as a migrant.
1: Well, I tried to write a memoir about 15 years ago to answer a question. Why did I leave Ireland and not return? Now, there were particular reasons why I left. I went away to study and then various things happened as, you know, I got a job and so on. But at some deeper level, you'd say, wasn't there an urge to return? And in my case, that seemed to fade out and other things seemed to become more important. And then, thank God, it wasn't published because in a certain way, it was a false memoir. It was following a pattern like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man or something like that. You know, it it had this kind of given form to it. As I grew older, I realised that the the biggest question really is... uh, How do you tell a story? Where do you begin? And how do you put a shape on it? And that simple formula that I had, no longer satisfying, and I was so glad it didn't appear. And the other thing that began to happen was I began to write essays rather than a full length narrative. I tried to zero in as closely and intimately as I could into moments or people to write little portraits or to describe an event. Not always conscious of why I had chosen these. They came to me in a a certain way and they obviously were images that represented some vital truth in my earlier life. I kept on writing these essays and luckily there were editors who liked them and encouraged me and I felt encouraged to write in a particular kind of voice. And then the voice became the book in a certain way. I found I can say what I want to say and I can put whatever shape I, I, I feel is right for the material. It was uh, There's as much in the memoir uh, about looking back and how we look back and about memory and forgetting and the importance of memory for integrating a life. And I suppose if uh, anything else, that's probably what motivated me, that I wanted to integrate the parts of my life.
0: To quote from the memoir, you write at one point, I became a kind of migrant in a shifting city. And who is this saying it's me? Tell me about that feeling of being abroad, as it were, in Montreal and the journey towards that.
1: Well, I went there to study and uh, one of the first things was I I realised what a multicultural city Montreal is, uh, a city that accommodates uh, immigrants from all over the world. This is very exciting to me and I found myself just one among many searching for a life, as as I say. Most of my friends are uh, are immigrants from many different parts of the world. To me, this was a, a way of placing myself, I suppose, um, in a, a world of migrants uh, rather than in an Irish world. Although I, I, I do think of myself as Irish-Canadian because I'm a Canadian citizen and uh, and I settled there. And so naturally, after 30, 40 years living there, it's become part of me and my children grew up there. Uh, and and so they shaped me in, uh, in that world, that Canadian world. But my first Montreal world, I think, was a world of migrants. Many people came to Montreal after the Second World War in particular people from Eastern Europe who had suffered greatly. And and so many of my closest friends are the children of people who had been displaced by the war. In in a sense, I began to realize that to be a migrant is a much more complex condition than the simple ways we thought about emigration and exile and these ways of thinking about people and and the real lives of these people that I met all, all around me and that I became close to, you know, where they became became migrants for such complex and difficult reasons. um, Somehow the the complexity of history was made very concrete for me. and, And each individual life I came to value as an extraordinary rich in experience and the smallest things uh, seem to reflect that depth of experience, you know.
0: Your own work then as a university lecturer, uh, in that you met a remarkable woman, uh, your first professor, who I think also helped to kind of open doors of perception for you about literature, about place in the world and about almost different categories of migration, how people regard themselves as emigrants.
1: The woman you're talking about uh, was a professor and I became her assistant. You know, I got to Canada in the first place because McGill University offered graduate students uh, money because how else would I have got got there, you know? And so you had to do something for it. And uh, so I was her assistant and taking some classes, and marking papers and so on. Um, she was a, a young academic at that time and hadn't yet first published her first novel. Her name is bharti Mukherjee, um, although I got to know her first as Bharati Blaise and thought I was going to be meeting a French woman. She, uh, she became quite a quite a celebrated um, novelist and short story writer in the 70s and 80s after she had left Montreal. But for me, uh, yes, she was one of those figures, you know, who opened up my eyes to the extent of the the cultural life that I could have in Montreal. She went on to reflect a good bit on what it means to be a migrant and, um, and the differences between different kinds of, of migration, um, exile and expatriation and so on. At the time I uh, knew her in the early 70s, she was a very striking figure because she wore these spectacularly beautiful saris and gold jewellery and everything. And her students were inspired and terrified, as I suppose I was. Uh, But gradually uh, she began to think of herself as an American, like Jewish Americans, for instance, uh, Bellow or um, Malamud or or figures like that, began to wear um, Western clothes but has written about this as well, about the condition of being, what she says, um, mongrelised, in other words, of mixed culture, mixed race, mixed identities. I found her an entirely inspiring figure as as her career developed in that direction.
0: And uh, you you say that in in time she actually almost came to reject something of Canada's multicultural vision, to cast aside the saris Mm. and those... distinguishing images of, I suppose, ethnicity, nationality, identity, and become part of a greater community.
1: Ever since the 60s, when Pierre Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister, he he had a very international vision of Canada's place in the world and was very welcoming of immigrants. Um, but there was at that time a tendency to say uh, people should um, preserve their cultural identities as much as possible and that Canada can accommodate all of these differences. Bardi Mukherjee, yeah, she, she didn't like that because she felt, I think, that it immediately made minorities visible whereas she did not want to be a visible minority. Um, that's an expression that's used, you know. And so um, she wanted to be fully integrated and that American would mean uh, include everybody in a sense, you know. So she has a very different idea of, of cultural identity in a, a state where you have so many different people from so many different backgrounds, races, religions and and, and so on.
0: Despite becoming a Canadian citizen, so early on, you you weren't always entirely comfortable. And you write about this divided reality of being Irish and Canadian, one place and another, as exclusive and disturbing and even shameful.
1: Uh, Well, um, I suppose I, I have to say that looking back, I was a kind of natural emigrant. And that might be shocking to many Irish people's ears, that you would grow up feeling an outsider to the extent that you would be, might be more comfortable moving on uh, to some other place. I mean, I go into that a, a bit in the first part of the book, which is about growing up in Ireland. Looking back, um, all kinds of things stood out for me. Little experiences, you know, that were distancing and that, that, that made me feel I was inside, but I was outside. But the broader cultural um, narrative in Ireland in those days, in the 50s and the 60s, was rather exclusivist, uh, if you like, and singular in that there there was a kind of official culture. You felt it, you know, and it was official in a way, Um, as well as being local. uh, People had a very powerful sense of attachment to locality. And, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in County Clare, two miles from the Galway border. And I remember people um, behaving as if the people on the other side in Galway, two miles away, you know, were... Definitely of a different nature than um, than our people were, you know. So that kind of uh, incredibly powerful sense of belonging and attachment and identification to community was a little bit frightening to me. Um, I mean, I, I don't know why, but, uh, but it was and I felt it. Um, repressive in some some way and it's something that I had to escape from or situate myself outside in some way. And
0: you write about a, a journey to Aaron as as a young fellow, 12 going to, mm. to learn Irish as your first journey to a foreign country.
1: Well, there are a couple of strands to that. I mean, it's uh, ridiculous in, in some ways, you know, but looking back, you can um, see things that maybe you didn't, didn't feel at the time or know at the time. So I, I can never be sure exactly how definitive they were. You know, could I have all these potential selves and that if circumstances were a little bit different, you know, I would have lived my whole life in Ireland. Maybe something could have happened and I might have lived in Ireland. You know, I you can't be certain about these things, seems to me. What, what was it so about Ireland at was that
0: a, time that made it feel so different and, and, and foreign? Uh,
1: it has to do with the Irish language, for one thing. Um, and then the people I met there, I mean, the most remarkable person I met there was a Dane who had settled there after, I mean, he was a war emigrant too, you know. He uh, he had left Denmark, he had settled for a time in England, but he was wandering, you know. Um, and I I, th- I came to think of him later, you know, as someone who was searching for some kind of haven, some kind of peace after going through the Second World War. Uh, and I believe he was in the resistance in, in Denmark. And he settled in Aaron. Now that he joined the community, he was very much an outsider there and he survived by making krisana and selling them, uh, you know, to um, tourists and on the mainland. And I also met two American anthropologists who had been living for a long time with the islanders. And for whatever reason, they got into conversation with me or I got in conversation with them and, and, and I discovered that. These were people observing the Islanders, um, which is a strange, guy. I mean, I was going there to integrate with the Islanders in a sense, right, to I'm absorb Irish. the authentic culture of, of Irish Ireland in, in the most pure form, in a way, in the Iron Islands. And yet these little incidents, you know, kind of displaced all of that. And uh, I suppose I was an awkward adolescent too, so I just didn't join in. Everyone was having a good time.
0: Did the Danish man who was making those belts on Ireland, Ar- did he learn Irish?
1: No, he did not learn Irish. You know, I had, I had a period um, as a as a Gwail-gir when uh, I, I've had a very fervent belief in the, in the restoration of the Irish language and it faded out sometime in my teenage years. It wasn't as if it was an automatic rejection, although I felt that um, I mightn't be entirely entitled to think of myself as an authentic Irishman at the same time. I mean, my name was always a burden that I carried because what is that? (laughs)
0: <laughs> the, of course, <laughs> again, the importance name, of name I mean, Samson. Yes, yes who, where yeah. does that name originally come from, insofar as we ever know these things?
1: The first Norman abbot who came with William the Conqueror to England, the conquest, was a Samson. They married in those days, and so um, uh, he had descendants, Normans, um, came to Kilkenny and settled in Kilkenny. Uh, an extraordinary thing happened uh, very recently to me because I moved to a new house. And um, the oil man uh, the, who was delivering the oil uh, saw my name for the first time. And uh, he said, uh, Samson, ha- have you been to Samson's court? And I said, no, what is that? And he said, it's a couple of miles out the road. And I said, what is it? Is there some kind of building there? And he said, it's a town's land. So just over the border in County Leash from, from north Kilkenny, there's a place where, obviously, um, Samsons lived in the uh, 16th, 17th century. They they were Catholics and uh, were kicked out by Cromwell, went wandering to Cork and Limerick, and settled in Clare in uh, after the siege of Limerick.
0: So maybe you've somehow been pulled back to your origins.
1: Uh yes, uh, I I find that very funny that um you know that this uh, you know that I became a kind of Francophile and that's actually where the name originated you know but uh, I don't believe in long periods in history though I think those narratives are myths.
0: And <laughs> um, uh, Dennis voice is is a constant theme in the memoir the blossom of Irish in childhood your you, your search to i suppose almost live and express your life at times in in French and and so on and then finding Your literary voice.
1: In some deeply uh, needed way, um, I think language and speaking voice... Uh, has been very important to me. There's a, there's a memoir that I particularly like uh, by uh, Eudora Welty, One Writer's Beginnings. She begins uh, about the sounds she heard as a child in her in her family home and just her parents talking and uh, singing and all the ways in which sound and voice uh, becomes absorbed at a very young age. And uh, of course, she went on to become a, a wonderful short story writer. She begins her understanding understanding of her talent, I suppose, in the way she, she speaks about finding a voice. I think uh, in some ways, too, language uh, was a key part of my growing identity at a very young age. There were a couple of issues that seemed to, to surface. One had to do with Irish and the other had to do with French, two languages that competed through my um, adolescent years. And I ended up going to France and spending a good deal of time there. And that's probably why I ended up going to the French city of Montreal. But before French became that important, obviously Irish was, because from the very first day at school, um, we uh, w- we spent a good deal of our time on Irish. And I actually wrote my uh, many of my exams, inter and leaving exams f- through Irish as-, as well. At the same time, there was a kind of ambiguity about it, um, both in the way my name, uh, you know, it was translated. I became Donegal Samsoon when I went to school and that, for me, has become a slight emblem of, my, of an early sort of displacement.
0: And I know there's a piece you want to read for us as well.
1: My father spoke no Irish and although my mother had learned it in school, she had no interest in speaking it. In fact, I never heard either of them utter a word of Irish. For years, I had heard its strangeness on the radio. Unnuachs came on each evening after the children's programmes and the Angelus. There would be news items about an irachtas and an Tishuk, the newsreader swirling those vowels until they were gulped down with the consonants. You had to do something special with your mouth to produce such sounds. But I learned that these were native speakers. Irish was their first language, and so they spoke with an authentic intonation, usually called the bláss. Strange as it sounded, we would have to make this way of speaking our own. We would have to get used to hearing ourselves in another voice. It was not good enough to know the other language, to read it or write it in school, for it was oral Irish that really counted. We would have to retune our tongues to produce a better voice than the one we had naturally grown into in our homes."
0: your childhood and clear. You're a cousin of Edna O'Brien and you have very clear memories of family observation of Edna when she became famous or infamous on the publication of her first book. Here she is quoting verbatim the opening lines of The Country Girls and talking about that early writing and its deep association for her with her home place.
2: I can tell you the first lines of the Country Girls by heart. I wakened quickly and sat up in bed abruptly. It is only when I am anxious that I waken easily. And for a minute I could not remember what it was. Then I remembered the old reason. My father, he had not come home. Well, that stands, for better or worse, for what it is. And the emotion that I wanted to Compress and convey in those few lines is the emotion that I still wanted to. We all are searching in this earth for a mother or a father or a goal or a god. They often they interlap. And I have always been searching and maybe feel in many ways a heartbreak about that searching. But that's one of the reasons why I write. If I were a contented person, I would not be a writer. The country girls, I often say, wrote itself. I sat down in my son's bedroom when they went to school in the morning, and I had left Ireland. We had moved to England. I was married at that time. And I never knew that I would feel such a loneliness for a country or a place that I had voluntarily left. That is one of the ironies of life. I didn't want to be in Ireland, and yet I was racked with pain, memory, detail of every second of it. So that book wrote itself very easily. I wrote it in three weeks, or it wrote itself. I couldn't stop. Now they take me three years. And that has to be because the simple style of the Country Girls and that trilogy. It is almost, although of course it isn't in reality, but it reads like a diary or a letter. It reads like somebody sitting down with somebody else and saying, I'm going to tell you a story. You know, Tolstoy says, each happy family is happy in the same way, but each unhappy family is unhappy in a different way. So all our... Not all. Our principal sensibilities as human beings, yours, mine, his, hers, starts in the home. There's no denying that. Your first smell, your first sight, your first sound, your first beating, or your first hearing a shout, overhearing a shout, your first sense of danger and of tremor, or if you're lucky, your first sense of being held and loved, starts in the home. So that sense, I think was imbued in me of being over-alert to everything and over-seeing of everything at a very, very young age. I was an observer who wanted to change the fates of those around me. So I was helpless, and words became the method by which I believed in my little childish way that I could make magic out of trouble.
0: Edna O'Brien there recounting her first foray into writing fiction and how bound up it was with her home place and family. It must have made quite an impact on you, Dennis, to hear stories of, of your cousin, the writer, who went to London and I suppose really broke the code.
1: Absolutely. My grandmother is O'Brien, and so her father and my father were first cousins. So I was very conscious of of her arrival on the scene, Uh, you know, in 1960. I was 12 at the time. Um, I was already a reader, of course, and so um, a a real person that we might know had written a book. So it put put writing itself into a special uh, place for me, you know, that it was possible to do such a thing, and that it was something that could really... uh, uh, jolt people out of their everyday um, assumptions about things, that she was challenging people to to reconsider and think and uh, see things in a new light. All of that, I suppose, is something I absorbed uh, very much through my adolescence is the people like Edna who asked us to look around us and is, are the received truths really the truth? <laughs> you know, there are others. And so, yeah, she was uh, she was a very powerful presence, although uh, I went on to discover other writers fairly quickly through adolescence and um, developed the dream of, of writing.
0: Your mother read *The Country Girls*. Uh, it was a great description of a, a, a copy in, in wrapped in brown paper, uh, more or less being smuggled into the house. And, and yeah, did yeah. she talk to you about it at all?
1: She didn't discuss it with me. And even though my mother mother read to an extent, mine was not a not a house of books, you know. Um, so, and my mother probably wouldn't know how to re, to articulate her response to it. In general, I think she probably shared the common view of Edna as uh, somebody saying shocking things and why was she doing this. I always thought, uh, I mean, why make a national scandal out of Edna O'Brien, you know? Just let people who would normally read her books, read books, read her books, you know?
0: And your, your own copy that you got your hands on and, and read, in a sense, almost smuggled into the country too, uh, yeah, in in, right. in boarding school.
1: That's right, yeah, yeah. I was very fortunate in the friends in, in boarding school who were independent-minded and uh, and we kind of banded together. Some of us worked on producing the, the, the school magazine, the a couple of times a year, and so on. So we were, we thought of ourselves as a kind of enlightened uh, little coterie, I think, or something. What school was that, Dennis? That was in Ross Gray, uh, run by the Cistercian monks where I spent five years from 12 to 17. While there was Gus Martin in that boarding school uh, as my English teacher, who was a very enlightened teacher for our age group and introduced us to all sorts of things and to the very idea of literature, you know, because he was a passionate advocate of literature and and reading um, and appreciation of literature at a young age. There was also, I think, uh, as in much of the country, a somewhat anti-intellectual streak, Banned books were banned for good reasons for in the minds of <laughs> lots of people, you know. <laughs> and you were a bit disappointed with them when you finally did get to read some. Yeah, there was more to be discovered.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of a journey. You were writing as well from a, a fairly young age. At the age of 17, you won a national poetry competition uh, for a poem to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 1916 rising.
1: I can hardly believe it now when I, I think of... I mean, that was a very important event and a very important moment, a very important year. I really don't know what, what inspired me to do that or to enter the poem, and I, I can't believe that it won. Uh, but it did, and so I did go to the Nuk-tron and shook Amy de Valera's hand and he, hand, he gave me a cheque for £50. £50. Pounds. 50 pounds. Yeah. Do you
0: remember anything about the poem?
1: It was called The Resurrection, and so it played on the notion of the choice of Easter as the moment for the insurrection, you know, so I, more than that, I can't really remember.
0: But you used that £50 pounds in a perhaps unexpected way.
1: Yeah, I, w- I was fortunate in a, a number of ways that I um, did an exchange with a student from France. It, it just happened, and so I had been to France the year before, In those days I was very curious about European politics and everything and the Berlin Wall had just gone up um, a few years before and Berlin uh, was some kind of beacon or something of where the the most decisive political um, events seemed to focus on the... I mean, it was still the Cold War, right? So the the wall in Berlin was something that caught my attention and so I went to Berlin with the 50 pounds... (laughs) and uh, and and frightened myself almost to death and <laughs> carried it i think that fear for a long time about travelling alone in a country where i don't speak the language
0: you had you had no German, so you, you just Not went a word. with this questing mind, than you did.
1: That was the goal. Get behind the stories of Time magazine, um, checkpoint Charlie, and go into East Berlin and see what it was really like to live in a communist state. And so I spent an afternoon in East Berlin and um yeah, it it was it certainly represented a questing for the meanings in history and experiences in, in history beyond the way it was presented to us, I suppose. Um there was a farm guest house program and uh, my mother loved to have people, she loved to cook for people and so it's something she did for quite a while. Her first guests were a young honeymoon couple from Berlin, um, Jürgen and Marianne Fry and um, they, they said come to Berlin and so I met them when I went and they set me up in a hostel and then I proceeded to get lost
0: So this again is the virtue and exchange of meeting people of those cross currents that you value so much We've spoken before about John McGarron and you writing on him in the book The Young McGarron Becoming a Novelist and you also wrote about his work in Outstaring Nature's Eye and I know that you came to know John very well over the years Here he is talking about the art of writing
3: I think that the the basic um, grammar of writing is very simple. I would see the image um, at its heart, and um, that can be um, a piece of thistle down or a wedding ring or a banana skin. And and I think that part of the writer's function is to pick out the images that sharpen and dramatise and bring the scene to life. And as far as I see it, uh, is that the rhythm is the emotional binding of the images. That uh, it's this where they're singing, and especially in novel writing, I think that the, that the rhythm is very close uh, to tact in manners, as when uh, to be silent, uh, uh, when to speak. Um, that you know that the way paragraphs are are part of that, and uh, punctuation is mean, very close to manners and I mean I think that I think that novel is the most social of all the art forms you know that the short story uh, is most close, much more closely linked to the poem and the drama than it is to the novel and uh, after the rhythm and the image, I see that the final shape that you give a book, and naturally, that's the most difficult uh, in a novel, is that it's it's closely linked to its uh, to the material or the content. And in that sense, I don't think that um, shape and content are divisible. The images, I mean, you have a scene in your mind all the time. I mean, and I think uh, my imagination is primarily visual. I mean, is that I actually see scenes and people in my head all the time and that you're always looking around in the head uh, to actually you know find the words that will bring that scene to life i mean uh, i mean i think that i mean a writer can't write about anything that he doesn't feel which is not self expression because you can actually write about something else that you might have a different feeling for than actually that the, you might be actually drawing on feelings from somewhere else than the mm. actual uh, scene that you're in but you actually do need to I think feel and think in order to find the right words.
0: John McGarren talking about the centrality of the visual in his writing and it's interesting here in your book Dennis that you write about how the dark and night lines, those great books of his are for you the most eloquent evidence you know for why leaving that Ireland of the 1950s and 60s was so necessary for psychic survival for you as well as for McGarran. Why do those books show you or remind you of that?
1: Those are very bleak books. Uh, I can say that now looking back. Deeply disturbing books, I think, Um, but uh, at the same time those, the images in those books are so powerful they convey such truth uh, they did to me conveyed the, a truth that I felt I knew it, it's odd that I discovered them after I went to Canada you know I didn't know his work before I, I'd heard of it but I hadn't read it I brought Nightlines with me I don't know why I chose to bring, I mean, I brought a number of books with me going to Canada and that was one of them. And it was in Canada that I really began to read it and uh, my skin began to creep. And, you know, it it is just such a powerful book. I think Nightlines is an extraordinary book, but so bleak. And I identified a lot, I suppose, with uh, what I found there, because in some ways it did speak to me intimately and can't always say it's not something rational in a way. It was a felt experience that reading these stories and then reading the dark felt so true. And that's what drew me towards McGarren's work. And then, of course, after I'd made that discovery, along came the leave-taking, which is about the very thing that I myself was going through at the time, which is a book of uprooting and uh, distancing and having to go away. So that's when I began to write about McGarren. but the leave-taking was, I suppose, the decisive book for getting me started in writing about McGarren.
0: You, you say that more than anyone, McGarren offered you ballast for the mind when you were in Canada. And it wasn't just in relation to Ireland that that was true. He guided you, I think, as well into a whole world of European literature.
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, I had I had uh, been a student, a graduate student, and wandering around doing a bit of this and a bit of that. You know, while I was trying to finish up that work, I had discovered McGarren, and that was that he became my true imaginative home. I would say in those years, uh, as soon as I could finish up the other stuff and get going on my real <laughs> imaginative education, I wanted to read everything that McGarren had had uh, referred to with such uh, passion and, and interest. You know. When I met him for the first time, um, he had come to Miguel University to do a reading. He, he read uh, from the new novel The Pornographer, but he also talked with such passion about Proust. And I had read one, I'd, I had to read Swan's Way because of course I was teaching, but it hadn't meant very much to me, you know. And so I had to find out why he would mean so much to McGarren and uh, Chekhov and all the others. Um, Chateaubriand's uh, memoir, um, Outre Tombe, um, which he read uh, and talked about so so eloquently and read just before he died. And maybe that was one of the first memoirs I actually read. Uh, you know, a, a memoir that was the equal, if you like, of, of a great novel or poem or something. You know, it wasn't just a life and times kind of. It's a it's a book with a vision.
0: Another visionary writer with links to Canada, whose work again you reference and obviously very much admire is, is Brian Moore, a figure who's probably uh, i sometimes think unjustly neglected now.
1: I, I agree about the unjust neglect um, but I think it came about because of misunderstandings and I even had a misunderstanding about his work myself because I, when I was writing the, my biography of Brian Moore I didn't realise that the chameleon novelist, the title I gave it borrowing from himself, um, although that's borrowed again from uh, from Keats. He was really a migrant, um, you know, searching uh, through many countries and um, through many genres and styles and voices. Uh, now I would write the book differently because I think of him as a migrant now and that that is the reason why he was so experimental in shifting every single novel is 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 a new territory in in a sense constantly reinventing himself as a as a writer. Um, a friend of mine in Montreal said to me one day in relation to Moore and um, and McAheron, something that took me completely by surprise, um, but I think is true in a profound way now. Uh, he said, your, your interest in McGarran is because he, he represents your father, whereas Moore represents you. And I thought that this came uh, came a couple of years ago after years and years of writing about both. And I think that something like that is so true. And I just, in the writing of this book, um, I think this friend in Montreal was talking about the the rootedness in place and locality, and the style that uh, grows out of that kind of um, imaginative reconnection. Because I, I do think of McGarren as a kind of a migrant who returned. And then Moore is constantly searching. You know, nothing is sure or certain, and um, every place is a possible, uh, temporary location, if you like. I suppose it's it's how it's the way I'm divided, right? And 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 this this memoir is my effort to integrate the two. Um, you know, I'm neither McGarren or Moore. You know, I'm someone else, um, myself. Um, you know, but uh, but the search was to find a voice that took me past the divided um, experience, and to recover so much of past lives in a way, and past experiences, and put them into a some kind of vision of a whole life. I mean, I, 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 that's what I think. Lies behind the writing of the memoir it's to integrate and yeah to to create a vision of a whole life
0: there's also a sense of of a journeying towards an understanding of your own father and his his silences his his quietness, his acceptance his seeming acceptance of his own place of of where he belonged and his seeming to feel an absolute sense of belonging there. And you, you write about how he never visited you in Canada and you say that such a journey would have been beyond the reach of his imagination and you think he may have died still puzzled by your need to go away. Do you, do you really think that, that he never fully grasped that?
1: He, he wasn't a very curious man, you know. He certainly wasn't interested in much that happened beyond the day-to-day routine of his life. Um, People might go off to other places or come back from other places, but he wasn't curious about what they might, what might be happening over there. For the most part, a very contented person with the life he had and lived the everyday in a very, very sort of existential way. You know, I I don't think he had um, a fixed idea of what life was all about. He just accepted and moved on, you know. That's why I suppose I, I think as so different from me because I'm a restless person, constantly curious and think that the most important thing in life is change and how we find meaning in a constantly changing life. He was aware of uh, time passing and so on but I don't think there was any great searching for meaning in the way I search for meaning, you know. In did, his he life. Ever,
0: did he ever ask you about Canada and your life no, in Montreal? never.
1: No curiosity, no interest whatsoever in what I was doing there. My mother, on the other hand, did and visited visited Montreal a couple of times.
0: And she, I think, there's a sense again in, from this book of her having had a more expansive view of the world, you know, and, and reading yeah. and having these unexpected connections to people and places around the world.
1: Well, in some ways, that was an ordinary thing. She had a cousin, a first cousin, she was close to her, who was a nun in Nigeria. And, you know, many Irish families would have a priest or a nun who would be a missionary. But in her case, uh, there was a great correspondence between the two cousins. And uh, my mother lived in some ways through that correspondence and equally through a correspondence with a first cousin um, she was very close to who married a Canadian um, uh, serviceman in the Second World War. She was a nurse in England and um, she went to live in Canada. And she, too, uh, you know, uh, corresponded regularly with my mother. So in an odd kind of way, my mother's a, my first writer, in, in a way, connecting with this wider world. And she certainly stimulated my interest in the wider world very much.
0: V.S. Naipaul is another writer whose work you quote and look to in terms of your own identity and those themes again of displacement, emigration, arrival and departure, the enigma of arrival and perhaps the enigma of departures at times too and that transitory zone between the two. Here is V.S. Naipaul speaking on identity and sense of self.
3: Well, I think, you know, we are made by many, many things. We no longer have a simple tribal identity and I I would say that I am made by the profession I have followed for 45 years. Uh, I am made by my birthplace, which put me in touch with um, the new world, the history of the new world, history of slavery, Latin America, uh, put me in touch with African people. Uh, Yet my ancestry has given me all India to to, to play with so I am many things have gone to make me I, I can't be one or the other
0: VS Naipaul they're talking about identity and the sense of self Dennis what makes Naipaul matter so much to you
1: It's not so much that I feel I share much uh, in common with his experience, except in my desire to write about it. And so um, books like The the Enigma of Arrival, and especially Finding the Centre, which is called Prologue to an Autobiography that he wrote just before um, The Enigma of Arrival, um, that's a key book for me, um, because it refers to finding the centre of the place you are in Um, or the place where you were, but it's also finding the centre of yourself as an observer of it and therefore finding a style or a voice in which to write about it. So I found that a very inspirational, uh, inspirational book. But there are many, many other books too, you know, and um, there there are people like uh, George O'Brien, for instance, um, who... uh, you know, The Village of Longing, hall Days and Out of Our Minds. That's That uh, trilogy of memoirs is, is, was a very important discovery for me as well. I began to read more and more memoirs in my search for finding the way to tell the story. And I, I felt somehow that it was an honesty in the telling I wanted to find and that memoirs led me there more than fiction did.
0: Tell me about reading Naipaul's The Enigma of Arrival. I think you were maybe around 40 uh, in a particular yeah. circumstance.
1: Yeah, I, I was in uh, in France for a year um, teaching and uh, it was a, a very disturbing year for me because um, I'd always been uh, sort of, well, I suppose I had, I suppose I'm thinking about Joyce and so on. I had a very European centred view of art and literature and I'd never really warmed too much to North American literature. And um, my year in France, when I wanted to become truly a Frenchman, uh, European or something like this, was a year, in fact, when I began to discover how North American I had become. I can't tell you exactly what that means, you know, but it gave me some some sense of going back to North America and especially thinking of my children as North American children. But um, reading Naipaul was uh, was disturbing, um, as well as very inspiring, because I think it's a, a book uh, for him of mourning. And uh, in some way, I think my year in France was a mourning a, a year, too, when... And I did begin to mourn, but uh, some sense of loss, um, you know, that I couldn't quite put my finger on. But what's, uh, what's exciting about that book um, is the first section Uh, Jack's garden where he arrives in the countryside near Salisbury and it's like being born into the world again you know he's like Adam you know just kind of looking around him and he goes on walks down these country roads and is just looking at everything as if he had and it restores an extraordinary wonder to the landscape and to being in a new place. And I think that's uh, that's one of the great talents of Naipaul, actually, is uh, his ability to, to try to put himself in a new place and just just discover it on its own terms, and that's something I suppose that I I would like to be able to do, you know. But at that time, anyway, um, finally, the centre was the more uh, was the the memoir, um, whereas the other is closer to fiction, I suppose. Um, why
0: why do you think memoir rather than fiction became You are meeting.
1: I think it's because of the importance of memory as a creative force that integrates um, various pasts, pasts um, that very often are even forgotten. I mean our consciousness can't accommodate everything, so so much of what happens to us we we don't really remember or at least it's not active in um, in our everyday lives, whereas I think memory is a powerfully active in recreating our past in a way that makes our present meaningful. So it's some kind of imaginative power. I mean, it's closely allied to imagination. Obviously, I mean, this is the most traditional view of it, you know, memory and imagination. But I like to think of it as the creative force that keeps wonder and discovery alive and makes every day a new day in our lives. I felt I could get closer to that sense of the discovery that happens in a life in, in a memoir. I think maybe North America is um, a memoir is a genre that suits a lot of North American life because it uh, always is uh, an immigrant country although not always as friendly to um, many immigrants it's true but um, in some way or other uh, I think beginning again and then trying to integrate the past and the present is uh, the experience of being an immigrant and so books like Eva Hoffman, for instance, Lost in Translation was a hugely important book for me, just as important as, as Naipaul, really, and a whole lot of others. Um, but all have to do with, with memory, I think, and recovery of past and the creation of a sort of imaginative home or something. I, I think it's, it's returning to recreate that's a liberating power. You've detached, but you, re, you bring it back into your life in some kind of active, imaginative, creative way, you know. So I think of these memoirs as doing something like that.
0: Do you feel that having lived these decades in, in Montreal helped you see Ireland with clearer eyes, as maybe not so much the, the tyranny of distance as the clarity of distance?
1: I would say certainly, yes. And returning in the last 10 years to experience a new life in Ireland, um, you know, because in the years in between, while we came home fairly often, we were always visitors and didn't have our own place. But having our own place here now has given me a whole other sense of and appreciation of so much of what is here that I would have been not capable of appreciating growing up restless and searching and so so on. Time has passed and I'm an older person, so maybe that's it. But it's an outsider's appreciation in a certain way, but it's an appreciation nevertheless. I mean... For instance, I never knew when I was growing up um, about how the colour arrives in the landscape uh, through the, the the months of late winter and spring and uh, how there's a sequence in the colours. Um, I had never noticed that when I was... And, but when I stopped, he, stayed here for winters, um, the first or second winter, I suddenly began to see this. And um, it's something like this that I appreciate now, you know. And uh, And the culture generally does attach meanings to all kinds of things that... Now, for me, I don't care so much about that. I was very politically involved as a young man and I had very strong political convictions. And um, that's one of the things that changed. And I I can't get passionately involved in political debates, you know, when I'm here now in the winters. There's so much else happening that, you know, is full of interest for me. And I I
0: wonder if, if the act of writing itself has also brought a clarity about how you perceive place and and a sense of identity, you have a, a lovely extract in which you capture, I suppose, something of the nature of autumn or fall in Dublin and Montreal. This this sweep of nature and the contrast be, between the two. You you might read
1: that for us. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove on leaving? It is autumn. And when I walk up on the mountain at this time of the year, these words of Hopkins, memorised in school days, come into my head. The maples are golden and red and yellow, and shades of all these luminous colours blend with the greens of trees not yet turned. The sky is cloudless blue, the sunlight shining through to create pools of gold on the arcaded avenues. Such natural beauty in the centre of the city is a great gift. The colours splashing on city streets and creeping up old grey stone and red brick houses down onto my own garden fence. There is no reason at all to grieve. The season is one of the wonders of the world. Why do I recall those words of Hopkins now? Maybe it's because the poem is called Spring and Fall, And now that I rarely say autumn, I'm amused by the way the bookish priest-poet who never came to North America could play with the word fall. I suspect it is more than that, for the poem ends with the grim line, It is Margaret you mourn for. And my deep pleasure in the here and now, the play of light and colour, is shadowed by the gloom that withers everything. My memory for the words may have been embedded by the doctrines that enveloped me in my Catholic childhood. The great fall, the start of all the other falls into sin. Everything on this earth, somehow the shoddy second best, after the garden in the sky. Those gloomy teachings wanted to reiterate that our end is everything, present in our beginning and in our every moment for we know not the day nor the hour of our individual end or the end of the world. This poem is the exact opposite of another by Hopkins we learned. Glory be to God for dappled things. That is the one I should be remembering, I tell myself. Today, all is changed. Overnight, many leaves blew down, and Chemin Olfsted is inches deep in reds, oranges and yellows. After my wife and I climbed up to this carriage path to start the circle, our feet shuffling through the fallen leaves, she remarked, This reminds me of the first time you took me out, and we walked home through the leaves by Stephens Green. It wasn't the colours, it was simply the shuffling sound of our feet that echoed, that brought back a long buried instant, a flash of memory that lit up that whole evening from so long ago. It was in late October 1969 I had asked her out to see Man and Superman at the Gaiety Theatre. We had met briefly at a party, introduced by a mutual friend. My invitation had fallen like manna. Peter O'Toole was the leading actor. Peter O'Toole, in the flesh, although far off from the seats I could afford on the balcony. She would go anywhere to see him, as she would much later to see Jeremy Irons although I can't see that I have anything in common with either. It was Peter O'Toole who changed my life on that October night at the Gaiety Theatre. The talk over coffee afterwards at Robert Roberts may have been decisive too. At any rate, by the time we were making our way through the leaves en route to her bedsitter on Upper Leeson Street, the threshold into the future had been crossed. The fire had flared up. Fallen leaves are, of course, not Golden Grove on leaving. They are indelibly imprinted on my wife's living inner history, forever associated with this first step in the transformation of her life. Everything became possible after that walk through the fallen leaves, although I did put a foot wrong many times. Maybe the most important thing was that we no longer believed that our garden was second rate for we believed that our golden grove could be as beautiful as any in the sky. We could create our own avenues and plant our own trees, which we did, although far from St Stephen's Green. And so, while most of our first year together was spent around the green and in and out over the Grand Canal, when it was time for the leaves to fall again, I had actually left the city altogether, and we would soon settle in Montreal. And so, we never again played in those leaves on the north side of the green. The leaves of October 1969 are unique in my wife's memory. In that rustle on the mountain, she became young again, starting out on the avenue to hear.
0: In the epilogue to the book, you, you'd say how you've come to an increased realisation that your Ireland is a state of mind that you've discovered and created uh, and perhaps less a state of mind than a state of words which links again to you you've, You talk about how literature and the literary world has become has almost replaced politics as the thing that you can most believe in.
1: Um, uh, it has replaced uh, a lot of other beliefs uh, actually and um But that, I think, has to do with the great richness of interpretation in literature and um, it gives depth to life. I feel I don't live on the surface, that I'm in touch with layers and layers of significance in life. And for me, that's hugely important that literature offers us this amazingly rich vision of what our lives are all about.
0: On the eve of of St. Patrick's Day, uh, when millions of people worldwide celebrate or assert a sense of Irish identity, I wonder, do you regard your sense of Irishness as something intrinsically important to you, a huge part of you, and something that remains constant despite that duality, that movement between two places and this, this shifting identity within the world?
1: Yes, it's vitally important to me, um, certainly. And the literature of Ireland is, is vitally important to me. But I do feel in my, myself as a person of mixed identities. And um, in fact, I, I feel it's it's very important to think in those terms because both for the immigrants who have arrived here, I feel I'm writing about the immigrants who have arrived here as well as the Irish who have left here. And both are Irish in in my way of thinking about it. Just as I remain Irish in Canada although I'm also Canadian. So I've come to think of identities and potential selves, you know, that we are far more complex than any of the labels say, you know, that, and that's true of Irishness as well, you know, that there are so many Irishnesses and mixtures with other things too. And that doesn't diminish in any way uh, my sense of being Irish. Uh, The fact that I'm Irish-Canadian, whatever the hyphen means, I don't know. But, you know, it doesn't diminish in any sense the fact that I'm also Irish. I I, I don't feel I've given up anything um, or surrendered anything or betrayed anything or by becoming Canadian have become less Irish.
0: Dennis Sampson, thank you very much indeed. A Migrant Heart is published in Canada by Linda Leith. It's available online worldwide and an edition for Ireland is also in selected bookshops. For information, go to lindaleith.com. Next week, voices from the DLR Poetry Now Festival 2015 in Dunleary. Join us next Monday night. Good night.
1: Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and Ionluan.